Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. This week, we're going to part two with former manager of the police and IRS Records founder, Miles Copeland. First of all, artificial intelligence is becoming a bigger and bigger part of the music business. Recently, in the Q3 earnings call for Warner Music, the CEO mentioned that they're going to be signing 100% new artists, thanks to their AI-driven app called Sodatone. That means twice as many artists on the roster, thanks to artificial intelligence. Now, Sodatone analyzes the 40,000-plus tracks that are uploaded to Spotify every day. Then it looks at all the social media and the touring data to see if it can spot new artists and new trends. At that point, when a new artist is discovered, it's then handed off to some real people who can then do the A&R job just the way they always have. Warner's also just hired a very famous data scientist to head up a new department that is going to be AI-driven. And this is going to cover everything from finding new artists to their finances to their sales and marketing as well. Unless you think that Warner's is the only one that's doing that, all the labels are dipping their toes into this. As a matter of fact, Tencent, the huge Chinese label, also has their own AI A&R app called Instrumental. So in fact, this is becoming widespread in the industry, and we'll see if it actually makes music better or not. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, speaking of artificial intelligence, we're all familiar with things like creating fake people for photos, faking voices in speeches, artist holograms, deep fakes, as much of this is called. However, what about deep fake music? There's a company called OpenAI that will allow you to generate music and lyrics using famous people like Frank Sinatra. Katy Perry, Elvis, Simon and Garfunkel, Tupac, Celine Dion, and more. Basically, if you want something to sound like Queen, you just input Queen on one side, and it will output a version of that, only it's all brand new and not done by Queen at all. Just sounds like it. Now, lest you think that this is the only company, there's a bunch of them that are out there doing the same thing. Is this good or bad? Well, The way I look at it is this could change music in a way that maybe we're not thinking about. For instance, if you're a beat maker and you're really good at that, but let's say you're not a really good singer. How about deep faking a Bowie or a Miley Cyrus vocal? It would be you singing, but essentially her voice or Bowie's voice on your track. Now, believe it or not, this is not illegal. There's no legal precedent, in fact, for stealing a voice. It's just too new. So we'll see how this goes down. This may, in fact, be brought to a court near you very soon, mostly because if a streaming network does something like this, where perhaps they do, let's say, an Elvis or a Bee Gees song, 
and then claim this is old catalog. Well, in fact, that could trigger something that could bring this to court, and we'll find out exactly how the court treats it. In the meantime, the music you're listening to may not be real. My guest this week, again, is Miles Copeland, who formerly managed the police and created IRS Records. IRS was at the forefront of the punk and new wave movement as the home for bands like R.E.M., The Bangles, Dead Kennedys, The Go-Go's, and many others. He also managed Sting in his solo and film careers. Today in part two of our interview, we talked about the modest start that the police got during their first tour of America, being a manager and running a label at the same time, the mentality of music execs in a corporate environment, and much more. I spoke with Miles via phone from his home in Los Angeles. I was always under the impression that college radio played a really big part in that style of music in particular, but your roster, I think. Was that true? Uh, it was, really, because, the, the, the you know, if I go way back, the police, the first police tour, I couldn't get arrested in England. I mean, to use a joke on the police, you know, <laughs> we, nobody really would pay attention. Okay, so I figured, well, you know, what the hell, if we could get them to America, it's three guys and a roadie, you know, we, we could break even at 300 bucks a night, you know, and my brother Ian was an agent at, at uh, an agency, an American Paragon agency down in Macon, Georgia, and they had kind of a vibe that, you know, they wished they could get into British music, but who, who goes to Macon, Georgia? Nobody, you know, yeah. they were in the Southern Rock, you know, so I think Ian got a job down there and he knew British music. And he said, well, I, you know, I called him and I said, look, can you book the police? And he said, well, you got no record deal. You got nothing, you know, but I can get them in all the dump clubs probably. And I'll try and see what I can do. And next thing you know, he books them in every dive in America. You know, I mean, we played places that I don't think even the worst group in America would play. But we did CBGBs and we did the Rat Club in Boston and this and that, you know. And the police did one show at a club in, in probably a disco or something in, in Syracuse, New York. Okay. Four people showed up <laughs> Four people. Okay. Most groups would walk out and see four people in the audience and think the hell with it. We're not going to play. The police said, you know what? Four people bought tickets. Who are we? We're f- from England. Nobody knows who the hell we are. Let's give these guys a real treat. So they walk out on that stage and they do a killer show. One of the four people was a college radio station DJ at MIT University in Boston, who had his own little punk show. His name was Oedipus. Oh. And he was so enamored with the police, they gave him the single that had come out in England, the Roxanne single. He went back to MIT and started banging that single. And then BCN, which he later became the program director for, you know, uh, started playing it, other stations started playing it, and it became a regional hit. So Oedipus has a huge role to play in the beginning of the police. And, you know, when you look at, and people always say to me, you know, what was the most important gig that you ever did? And they were thinking I would answer something like Shea Stadium, you know, or where we played 80,000 people or whatever. I say, no, 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 the most important gig? Syracuse, the four people. What? And I say, well, because one of those four people changed the whole game, you know. He, play, he played that record on the, on the radio. It became a regional hit. And it showed up on the Billboard in, record charts in um, the, the, uh, 
78, 78, beginning of 79, he showed up on the record charts. So Jerry Moss saw that. Of course, he reads Billboard. You know, he wasn't going to read Sniffing Glue magazine or any <laughs> fanzine or anything like that. You know, he was looking at Billboard, and he sees the name Police there next to it is A and M Records. Of course, it was the import. You know, and so he calls me up and he says, uh, "Is this my act?" And I said, "Well, it is." And I, he says, "Well, we better do something." I said, "Yeah, you better." You know, so Oedipus at College Radio at MIT. I would say in many, many ways, he was sort of the Michael Plan. He was the first step in the police succeeding, you know, and then uh, Michael Plan later on with the Go-Go's. Or so you look at some of these key guys who were relatively, in, you know, who would appear to be relatively insignificant guys from a relatively insignificant gig, but they were they were instrumental in, in making something happen, you know. So it always made me think, you know, that, don't be too proud. You know, you walk out on a stage and there's only a few people there because you never know who's in that audience. It might be somebody important, you know. Always go for your best, you know. And don't write somebody off because they don't have any credits, yeah, you know. Yeah. Michael Plinn, what credits did he have? He was a college kid. You know, Jay Boberg, what credits did he have? Nothing. He'd, he'd been in the record. He was still in college, for Christ's sake, you know. But look look to the talent. Look, do they, do they have the chutzpah? Do they have the drive? Do they have that something, you know? Look for that instead of reading some resume, you know. And I think that was probably a lesson I learned early on, was that resumes and all this, they can always be doctored and made up, you know. I mean, I'm looking at, you know, I look at, uh, I did my memoir. I was writing my memoir earlier this year, so I'm locked down in L.A., and I'm looking up some of the old people that I worked with, and I'm reading their resumes. <laughs> I'm finding out they helped me found a label or they helped me found a publishing. <laughs> Wait a minute, that guy joined the company two years after we started it, you know. <laughs> And it's amazing, you know, how you can doctor a resume. So when I think about it, I think, you know, there there are those people that just because somebody doesn't have a resume doesn't mean that that uh, they're not good. Make a judgment based on, you know, almost your almost your gut instinct, you know. And and I think that was really how we started IRS. So I really, but it was a lot of it was that I had no choice, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if, if Jay Boberg had said I need fifty grand, I would have said no. You know, the fact that he accepted a hundred bucks a week. And he seemed to know, know what he was doing and was ready to give it a shot. I'd say, yeah. You know, the interesting thing was I was in Boston at that time when Oedipus was playing that record. I was in music school at Berkeley. And for some reason, it caught on in the Berkeley community where the police was the hot thing before they really broke out. And the one thing I remember was they played the Paradise Club and it was broadcast on BCN. And everybody that I knew at Berkeley that couldn't get a ticket was crowded around radios. We're all listening together. It was very influential, surprisingly enough. And you'd think at a music school that's, you know, at that time it was mostly jazz bows. No, the police really captured everybody there. So for what it's worth. Yeah, well, I, we first did Boston. It was at the Rat Club yeah. on that first tour, you know. Um, and I, Oedipus wasn't there actually. I, for some reason, he went to he went to see us in Syracuse. I don't know. I, I actually never did figure out why he saw them there. But we did the Rat Club, and it wasn't until later that we did the Paradise. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they had. I think the secret was that is that they were. It was kind of minimalist, and the Roxanne sound was something that, again, like I say, you know, I, when they played that in the studio. Stuart, Andy, and Sting didn't want to play the song. 
They said, Miles is going to hate it. It's a ballad. Because remember, it, it was a punk rock time. Punk rock was all about, you know, bash him up and your stance. And it was, bah, 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 bah. it was all heavy duty, you know, raucous, kick everybody in the ass, you know, be against everything, you know, uh, stuff. Whereas Roxanne was a sweet love song, very minimal, uh, slow ballad. And, and, uh, it was the antithesis of punk really, but it mixed a bit of reggae in there, you know? Yeah. And it just had this something about it. You know, when I heard that song, I had gone in to the, to the studio thinking I was going to hear a punk group, you know, and my first criticisms really of the, of the songs were, well, they're not aggressive enough, you know, they're this and that, you know? And so, by the time it came to Roxanne, which was the last song they played me, the band had decided that I was going to hate it because it was, if all the others weren't raucous enough, well, this one definitely wasn't. But the engineer got kind of tired of us bickering. I said, look, I'm here. I've driven two, an hour to get to the studio, play the damn song, you know. And the engineer finally just stuck it on. He said, what the hell? He wanted to stop us arguing. So he plays this song, and I'm listening to this thing thinking, man, this is, this is completely different. It just showed the police in a completely different light. And I looked at those guys and I said, guys, that's a classic. You've written a classic. And they looked at me like I had two heads. They said, what? You like that? And, you know, of course, thing then pops out later on with, you know, Can't Stand Losing You and the whole reggae influence popped in. But I went to A&M the next day and I played them that song, you know, and that got us the deal, you know. So there was something special in the police, you know, and I think it was maybe it was just, it was it was honest, you know, but I think the reality was that Roxanne was honest to what the police were, whereas the first couple of singles that we put out on the police, you know, which was Fallout and whatever, they were really punky. They weren't really that honest, but the band has really become, because when you have an Andy Summers on guitar and you have Sting and, you know, and Stuart, I mean, you have guys that really can play and they're, they're you know, show them at the best light, you know, and Roxanne did that, you know, it was, it and it was, sort of understated and whatever it worked you know and and that that made things happen and i guess i guess oedipus heard that just like i did you know how did you reconcile management and running a label at the same time because it's so difficult to do one or the other let alone both well thankfully the police understood i think that they were a little bit older you know and they understood that there were certain advantages of having a manager who had his fingers on the pulse in a number of other ways as well. And that the stronger I was, the stronger I'd helped them become as well, you know. And they allowed me, um, you know, to put on the support group. So I said, well, if the police are going to go out, I'll put the cramps to open or Skayfish or Wall of Voodoo or whoever, you know. So the police were pretty open with letting me put on support bands, number one. But number two, I think they, they began to appreciate that I had guys uh, at IRS Records here in Los Angeles and around the country who were working on IRS Records, but they were also giving me information on what A&M was doing with the police and squeeze. You know. And I was always very careful with, my, with the guys. I was saying, look, whatever you do, do not make A&M people afraid to tell you something and to cut you out of meetings because I want to know what's going on, you know. And I was very careful not to go to Jerry Moss and say, well, look, you're spending more money on Peter Frampton than you are on the police. What are you doing? You know, so, but that information, you know, it's like knowledge is power. 
I had guys, it's almost like you're, you know, they, they talk about during World War II, the fifth column, you know, your, your people that are, we, we, I, had, I had my own people sitting in on all the meetings, you know. So I knew what A&M was spending on all the different labels and what their attitudes were on everybody, you know. And that helped me with the police. And I think the band understood that there was a certain value to that. And uh, they gave me the latitude. But you're right. I, mean, I think if they had been very jealous and they were saying, well, you're spending more time on IRS records than you are us, and how come you do it? You know, it might not have worked. But uh, I think that the, the IRS A&M, because I think also you have to keep in mind is that we were bucking the system. Everybody wrote off the police in the beginning. You know, everybody wrote off IRS records. You know, people thought it was all cute and all that, but, you know, is this real? You know, mm. I don't think they, anybody really paid that much attention. So, you know, when, when, when it's like the old saying, beggars can't be choosy, you know. Mm-hmm. So if, you know, a college station was going to play my music, fantastic, you know. Um, MTV comes along, and everybody wrote them off, even. People forget that MTV was not something that everybody immediately jumped at. There were a lot of bands that said, well, we're not going to give you any videos. They said they would play my stuff. And so as far as I was concerned, great. You know, I'm your biggest fan. <laughs> You'll play my stuff. Fantastic. The fact that you've got nobody listening to you, who cares? At least you're something, you know. So it was like, you know, grasping at straws, you know. And so I think we were bucking the system and effectively changing the system, even though we didn't necessarily know it at the time. But I think that was really why it worked for me to be able to say I was a record company and a manager, because one tended to help the other. You know, I used my management, you know, um, clout with the police and squeeze or whatever to give opportunities for the IRS acts to open those shows. You know, I mean, REM played with the police at Shea Stadium, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so the police afforded me the opportunity to put bands on with them. But the vice versa is that IRS gave me information that it was helpful to me to help promote the police. So it one hand tended to work with the other, you know. Let's jump ahead to CIA. And I'm actually very excited to talk to you about this because I'm really a big fan of, I hate to use the term world music, but music that's not particularly Western. And that's what you're specializing in, right? Yeah. Well, I had gotten into that. When, when, when I finally, you know, I mean, the story of IRS records, I, I find actually pretty fascinating. And there was a guy, you know, we're, we're actually doing a documentary on IRS records, which will hopefully be out next year and on Showtime or something, you know. And the guy came to me and said, look, I want to make a documentary on IRS records. And I said, well, look, I'm not interested in, okay, I signed this, and aren't I great, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. I said, that's really not interesting. I said, what's really interesting about IRS records is, we started with everybody thinking we were a joke. We, we signed up acts for nothing. We were breaking every rule because we could. It was cheap to do so. Um, people gave us latitude. And as we began to grow, a lot of the things that we were rebelling against in the beginning, we actually ended up becoming at the end. So when IRS finally sold to, to EMI, I said, look, we became, a, we became a corporate company, you know. When the accountants walked in and said, okay, all right, Miles, here's your, here's your task for this year. You've got to make this much money, 
if you make that money, you get your Christmas bonus. If you don't make that money, fuck you. You're out of here. Mm. And when, when you have that happening, all of a sudden, you know, you have to start thinking, well, I need acts that are guaranteed sellers. You know, they need me to make this number. I, all of a sudden, you start looking at resumes, you know, because you need to prove to the people you weren't stupid, you know. So flying by, the, you know, your, the seat of your pants and your gut instinct all of a sudden becomes a little bit harder to do because now there's real money involved, you know. And I saw IRS go from this radical, you know, strange, do-whatever-you-want label where I could sign up the, the craziest groups, and I did. I signed up crazy groups who were fantastic, but they were, they were nuts, a lot of them. You know, I mean, the cramps were, were crazy, but they were fantastic, you know. Um, but at the end, you know, I was forced to sign up people that I would have not normally wanted to sign up because I thought they could put numbers on the table, you know. So I saw the label move from this, you know, wild cowboy era to, you know, all of a sudden I'm on Wall Street. You know, it's like I got to deliver the goods that the, you know, corporate people wanted, and and that was that was a real problem. And so finally we terminated. You know, when, when EMI finally started closing labels, they closed Virgin, they closed one after another. You know, and IRS was one of them. And then I was forced. You know, I said, well, I'm going to start a new label, um, which became the CIA label. And I, again, I was in a situation where I was going to fund this myself. You know, I really didn't want to borrow money from another company. And I looked out and said, well, who has problems getting their records out in America? Well, it's a lot of these artists that were around the world that people weren't considering because they're not singing in English. So, you know, you have a group from, or, you know, Algeria or from Egypt or from India or whatever, you know, and... It, we call that world music, but it's music in a different language, you know. Okay, even Spanish artists were having trouble in America, you know. I mean, you have your Latin division and this and that, you know, but there were certain rock acts that nobody paid attention to. Well, that's not really Latin, you know, where they they, they would say, oh, well, you know, Harold del Silencio in Spain. They're singing rock music, but it just happens to be in Spanish. So that's not really world music. So what, what was called rock in Espanol was not really considered something that America would be interested in. So I would find a lot of these amazing acts that were selling millions of records around the world, but nothing in America, you know. I mean, you know, Clandestino by Manu Chao sold two million records in France. Nothing in America. Mm. So I signed it for nothing. And I put it out, and we, we did very well with it, you know. Um, so I was gravitated to world music largely because I could afford to get into that game and actually, because I was making judgments based on, you know, do I like this music? The fact that it's in a language I don't really understand, you know, do I really care? You know, I mean, you know, the old days of rock and roll. I mean, I remember uh, many, many years ago, there was a, there was a comedian by the name uh, um, Stan Freeberg. And he had a sketch where he would go like, yeah, I, I, I'm in a rock band. And 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 uh, he has his producer. The producer says, "Well, I can understand all the words. Here, stick this rag in your mouth, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because you know, boom, 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 It's like, well, who cares? Bebop, Alula, you're my, you know. <laughs> when did lyrics matter? You know, so so. Well, they later, but they mattered when you had a Bob Dylan or whatever. But but you know, in the early days of rock and roll, did you really care? You know, Hound Dog. What was that about? Elvis yeah. Presley, Hound Dog, you know. 
So a lot of the early songs were pretty minimal, and who cared about the, the, it was really the vibe of it, you know. So I did, I sort of applied the same message to world music that, you know, one applied their rock and roll in the very early days of rock and roll, where who understood the words? I mean, I remember Willie Bully, you know, I had, when I was in college and in uh, doing under, undergraduate work, uh, there were so many different versions of, well, hey, I got the real lyrics to Willie Bully. Here, look <laughs> listen to them. And, and it was like, Willie Bully, I, if you listen to that record, you could almost think any, you, you, you could think it's Shakespeare, for our, for argument's sake, you know. Yeah. But who knew? You know, it didn't matter, no. So there's a lot of great music out there in the world that, whether you understand the lyric or not, but it's the vibe. And there was this one artist, uh, by the name of Sheb Mami, who was from Algeria. And his voice was so magical that when I heard that music, and it was he, he, he incorporated Middle Eastern sounds, but he also incorporated Western sounds. He had the Western bass and Western drums, along with the oud and the kanun and these various exotic instruments from Algeria. So it was like the marriage of my rock and roll world with my Middle East world that I had subliminally kind of become attached to without even knowing it. So all of a sudden I heard, you know, Khaled and Sheb Mami and Fodel and a lot of these bands that were in Algeria because they had moved to France. They had adopted rock and roll instrumentation, added it to their Arabic instrumentation and came up with a whole new sound. And when I heard that sound, I thought, man, this is just fantastic. And I played it to Sting, who, who unbelievably <laughs> liked it. And uh, that led to Desert Rose with Sheb Mami singing it, you know. But again, it was this voice that was just magical. And I heard the voice. I mean, it was this amazing way of singing, but who cared what he sang about? It didn't really matter, you know. But it did matter to, to the powers that be at the record company. Because I remember when I went into Universal with this Desert Rose single. And uh, I, I, I assumed it was going to be the second single off the, the, the Brand New Day album this thing did. And, um, you know, I'd ask people, you know, what's your favorite song on the record? That all, everyone to a man would say, uh, Desert Rose. And I go, okay, well, then obviously that's the next single. And they go, oh, no, 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 it can't be the next single. Well, why not? Well, it's got this Arab guy on it. And we don't know what the hell he's singing about, you know. And I go, yeah, but what's your favorite song on the record? Oh, Desert Rose. Then why isn't that a single? Oh, no, because it, because it broke the rules. Okay, You're not supposed to start the song off with this voice that we don't know what it is, and it's in some weird Arab dialect, you know. And <clears throat> So I had actually had somebody say to me, take the Arab guy off and maybe we'll put the record out. And I said, yeah, but then you're not going to like the record, which, of course, they agreed. So it was <laughs> like a Catch-22. And it wasn't until uh, we made a video for Europe because in Europe they didn't have, they weren't so precious about language. Uh, and I saw this video, and I thought, well, the car in the video is fantastic. And you know, my God, we made a car commercial. So I went to Jaguar, and uh, they got excited about it, and they they decided they would they would make they would they would buy TV ads using the music, and uh, that made Desert Rose a hit. You know, and. Uh, the record company hadn't even intended to put it out until radio people started phoning a radio station and saying, why aren't you playing the new Sting single? And they would, the radio would say, well, what Sting single? The one about the desert and the rose and the car. And they go, well, they would call a record company and they'd say, what's the matter with you people? Why did you give me the Sting single? Why is my station being precluded? And the record company was like, well, 
What stinks? What are you talking about? They go, man, why with the desert, the car, the rose? And <laughs> the record company started realizing what hell had happened here, that these commercials were going out that Jaguar was paying for. It was an $18 million commercial buy. You know, mm-hmm. They bought the Super Bowl, for Christ's sake. And record company rushed the single out. It went top 10. You know, it was Sting's biggest hit, you know, for, for many years, you know. And uh, it just goes to show that the public did the same thing I did. They listened to the music and thought, wow, that's great, you know. And the fact that it was in a language they didn't understand, who cared? It was the vibe of it that really worked. But, you know, there are a lot of rules in the in the music business. And you're sitting there and you're dealing with lots of money and, you're looking at the rule book and thinking, well, can I get away by doing this? You know, are people going to look like I'm, you know, I'm foolish for putting something out that's in a foreign language? So Desert Rose would have been written off had it not been for Jaguar, you know. And and the same goes for a lot of the, the music that I put out. Clandestino from Manu Chao would have been forgotten, never released in America. I released it, and it's it, to this day it stands as one of the greatest albums I ever released, even though it's mostly in Spanish, you know. I was in Sydney a few years ago. And there was a concert that was on the steps of the famous opera house. And the lead act was called Sarong Samurai. The most fantastic new sound I've heard in a long time. They were from Papua New Guinea. And what they did was they incorporated traditional instruments. But sometimes you know what it's like with Western instruments. But sometimes it just feels like it's tacked on. Like it's, it's just there. In this case... It was integrated so well. And then they had dancers that would come out and do traditional dances, but then they'd break into the New York punk beat boy hip-hop style. And next thing you know, they'd be singing in perfect three-part, four-part, five-part harmony. And it was just the most fantastic blend of indigenous music with Western music I've ever seen. Plus the visuals they had were every bit as good as what you can get from Hollywood. It just excited me so much because it was like, this is the future of music. It's not what we're basically experiencing in the United States. It's something like this, which is taking a new avenue. If you go back to the early days of rock and roll, okay, effectively the same thing was happening. I mean, people said of Elvis Presley and, and, uh, and uh, Jerry Lee Lewis and whatever, you know, they're playing black music. But basically, what Elvis Presley did, or Jerry Lee Lewis, and a lot of these people did, they, they, they brought black music that had probably originated in Africa, had, had been festering in New Orleans and in Chicago and some of these places. And these white guys come along, and they take that element of it and add something else to it. So rock and roll is a, is a, is a hybrid. It's a hybrid of white and black mixed together. And the whites made it something that, you know, the blacks were not necessarily playing to whites. But the fact that white guys started playing it, all of a sudden, they were exposed. People started discovering B.B. King and, and uh, Muddy Waters and a lot of these guys that they forgot. And the Rolling Stones and all these bands. And, and uh, you know, remember, the, the Beatles, or whatever, a lot of the early stuff, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and all these bands were doing was really... Music from the ghettos of America, you know, black music. You yeah. know, so so I think the hybrid music, you know, whether it be indigenous from Papua New Guinea or the Algerian music that I was hearing that was gone to France and it was Algerian Arab music mixed with Western rock, 
you know, or rock in Espanol that was, you know, um, rock with sung in Spanish, but also they added this certain elements into it that you wouldn't necessarily have heard, where you hear Peruvian flutes or this and that. To me, hybrids are really what's interesting. And a lot of the greatest, I mean, the police is one of the greatest examples of a hybrid. You've got punk, pop, and reggae yeah. merged together in some kind of a mix that made it different. You know, the Pink Floyd, uh, you go down the list of, of the really the big bands, and most of them were basically hybrid groups that they, they were lifting, stealing a bit from here and a bit from there and whatever, and mixing them together and coming up with new combinations, you know, like a chemistry set, you know. So I, I've, I've had times where I, people have said, well, you know, you're, you're culturally appropriating. Yeah, <laughs> of course we are. That's what makes things grow. That's what makes things happen. That's, that's what other people have done to Western music and Western people have done to other people's music, is that it's all about culturally mixing it up. Because then you begin to appreciate things you never would appreciate. I mean, who would have appreciated Arabic music uh, to the degree if, if Sting hadn't done Desert Rose? You know, all of a sudden, people like Shebmami and Khalid and Fodel and all these people were getting recognized where they might not have been recognized. Or a lot of the Indian music, you know, that, that was happening when you have some... I mean, there's it's great musicians all over the world, you know, and, and it's the hybrid of them that really makes it interesting. So, to me, world music... The, the beauty of world music is that it's such a rich resource because you've got all these different countries with all these different different cultures and different instruments and this and that. So you never know where the next weird sound is going to come. It's just something's fantastic. It came out of middle of Africa or middle of some island in the in the Pacific. You know who knows? But you know the, those hybrids to me is what's interesting. But really, it's it's a process that's gone on. For a long, long time, and people forget that rock and roll started that way, too. Well, the interesting thing, and this kind of leads me to another place that I want to talk to you about. You've always been starting on a shoestring, raging against the machine, so to speak. Now, we kind of have a big change in the music business, which started the same way. You started with hip-hop, started on, on a shoestring, and became the heart of at least the pop music business now. How do you see what the business is like today? Well, I, I think the business is changing all the time, even when you don't recognize it. I mean, my kids listen to stuff that's different than I was listening to. What I was listening to, my father objected to. He was in the big band jazz, you know. So there's always this progression, you know. But there, there tends to be these doldrum periods, you know, where, you, where everybody tends to copy everybody else, because that's the latest hit, you know, and and it kind of goes in phases, and that's really when when the punk thing was happening. My 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 view was, well, this is the end of one phase and the beginning of a new one. Whereas most people were thinking that it's just a continuation of the previous phase, and these new people can't play, so therefore dismiss them, you know. Where I was thinking, well, it's a new generation; they're gonna they're gonna come forward. So I think ten years from now, you ask the same question, and the music's gonna be different, you know. But I think hip hop. I mean, people have realized now that you can you can talk a song as well as sing a song. You know, so you know you can hear. And now you see bands, you know, whether it be Aerosmith or whoever, who mix together. You know, when they'll 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 get a punk group, or sorry, they'll get a a rap group and they'll mix it with a with a rock song or something, and they'll end up with something different. You know, so to me, I I like the whole hybrid thing. You know, the distribution of music has changed. You know, now that it's Spotify, whatever. Although, in a way, 
it's now easier to hear music coming out of strange places. I mean, I know my kids, you know, they'll be listening to some record, and I'll think, well, where's that from? And it's from Norway or something, you know, where it's so easy now to hear songs that are coming from some of these other places that perhaps the world has opened up more to more influences. But I think I think that music is a moving target. I think in 10 years from now, the music will be different again, and 10 years after that, and 10 years after that. I mean, maybe it's in 10-year cycles, I don't know. But, but I think that, you know, for me to make a comment on what I see music today, I mean, it, it, that'll, it'll be irrelevant 10 years from now, you know. Yeah. Just as it was probably... You know, when, when, when people were commenting about punk rock and telling me, well, you know, it'll never happen. I mean, I was told with the police, go home. This music will never happen in America. I was literally told that, you know. And when I started the label, you know, people were said, ah, it's a no-hoper, it would never last, you know. And the Go-Go's were told, they'll never happen, you know. The Bangles, go down the list, you know. And, you know, the Beatles were, were, were rejected by every record company in England, you know. So I think rejection is almost a sign that you're going to succeed. <laughs> like, well, give me something that got rejected. It's probably going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Last question, Miles. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe somebody imparted to you or maybe you learned along the way? I, I would, I, you know, I've, I've had a lot of thinking about this kind of subject because I wrote, was writing my memoir. And, and when you're writing that, you're beginning to think back about, you know, well, why did something happen? And why did this other thing not happen? I mean, I had acts that were very, were at least as, as talented as the police or a squeeze or whatever, you know, and you say, why did that act happen and this other one didn't happen, you know? And I, I would say there, there are some lessons that I learned along the way. And one of the ones that I would say, you know, is important for people to realize is that make the answer yes easy and you're likely to get yes as an answer. And in a way, that, that goes to the same thing. Is it make it cheap enough to be able to afford, and somebody's likely to buy it, okay? If it's too expensive, you know, it's like if a car comes along and it costs you 1000 bucks, you think, what the hell, you know, I'm going to buy a car. If it costs you $100,000, you got to think seriously about whether you're going to buy it or not, you know. So in the same way, if I had gone to Jerry Moss and I said, well, uh, you know, let's make a record label, IRS Records, it's going to be huge. And I said, but I need a million dollars. He would have told me to get out of his office, you know. Yeah. But the fact that I said I wanted nothing, I made yes easy. The other, the other thing I would say is that when you look at the world and you say, well, what really, what, what is the combinations that work? You know, why did me with the police and the three members of the, why did that work? And me and Wall of Voodoo didn't, okay? Um, Stan Ridgway is one of the great lyricists. He's, he's, humor. He's got all sorts of elements to him. Wall of Voodoo was a brilliant group, you know. And, you know, you look at this idea of, you know, to me, the trick of business is you, you take one and one and you make it equal three. That's the ingredients of success, whether it be Wozniak and Steve Jobs. One and one, they made three, you know. But it, it's a two-sided coin, you know. Me and Sting, we made three. Me and Voodoo, it was one and one and didn't work, you know. Why didn't it work? And so, in a way, it's like you could look at yourself and think, "Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a key ingredient." But then again, it's the other side is a key ingredient as well. So it's it's really a combination of ingredients that tend to work, and it's usually not one person. You know, why did IRS happen? Yes, it was me largely. But if it hadn't been for Michael Plan, 
if it hadn't been for Marvin Boland and the various other people in the company that helped make the label happen, you know, would the Go-Go's have happened? You know, no, it probably wouldn't have. So you, you, it, it, it is a combination of things that make things work. But, I, but in the end, the starting off point has to be like, okay, if, it, if it's not affordable, you're, you're, you're not going to get play, people to participate. You know, if, 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 if the yes is not easy, then you, you're not going to get anybody to go for it. You know? So you've got to make the entry easy. If the entry is easy enough, then then it's down to you to make it work, you know. But if the entry is not easy, then you've got to rely on luck. And I'm afraid that luck is one of those fickle things. You know, it might work one day, but not another. And do you want to leave your future and your whole life in the hands of luck? Well, for me, no. So I I I think that <clears throat> I, I I think luck is important, but you can make your own luck by making it easy to get into the game. You can find out more about Miles at milescopeland.com. That's milescopeland, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.